Montesquieu's spirit of the laws is one of the characteristic products of the French Enlightenment, and it's a milestone in the development of social science. Montesquieu is one of the most interesting, one of the wittiest writers of Enlightenment social theory, and he himself was an aristocrat. He had a rather conservative, somewhat pessimistic view of human nature, and he's also something of a skeptic in his outlook upon science and upon society and upon human nature. We have to think about the context in which Montesquieu is writing in order to really comprehend what his project is and what he's trying to accomplish. He's writing in the first part of the 18th century, and he's trying to figure out in a purely naturalistic way how human societies work, what makes human governments run, and what sort of political arrangements are good for people under what circumstances. Now, the reason why Montesquieu is concerned with these issues is because the rise of modern natural science fundamentally changed the conception of human nature and of human society characteristic of Western thought. Once Newtonian mechanics and the advances that made it possible, such as Bacon's work or Galileo's work, become widely influential in intellectual circles, our conceptions of society, our conceptions of morals, our conceptions of government cannot remain unchanged. In other words, there's a sort of link, a seamless web between the elements in intellectual life. And when a fundamental change like the rise of modern natural science occurs, we cannot anticipate that it will be without consequences for the rest of our thinking. What Montesquieu represents is the first grudging attempt, or if not grudging, the first groping attempt to create a social science modeled upon our natural science, which compares in a purely naturalistic way the different kinds of governments that actually do occur in the world. This represents a fundamental break with the tradition of ancient political theory. Here's why. Think about something like Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic attempts to create an ideal state, a perfect government full of perfect people, and it tries to find out and inquire into the sort of necessities for such a government, the kind of education, the kind of politics, the kind of morals, all the things that go into creating an ideal state, an ideal society. Now, Plato himself admits that no such society ever exists here in the world. The good point about it is, is that it allows us to criticize the societies that we do actually find. The bad part about it is, is that it is a utopian in the pejorative sense of the term. There is nothing like Plato's Republic here in the world, and it has a limited degree of utility for us when we wish to analyze the governments that we actually do find here in the world. Montesquieu wishes to take an alternative approach to political theory. Instead of setting up an ideal paradigm for the good society, the good government, Montesquieu is going to look empirically at the governments that actually do exist in the early part of the 18th century, and also the governments that, is, that have existed historically. He's going to take political history as a kind of empirical database for his would-be political science. And he wants to talk about the way governments are rather than the way governments ought to be. And this movement from an ideal government to real, actual governments is very much in keeping with the development of modern natural science. If we want to know the boiling point of water in a purely physical, scientific way, we look at it. We don't idealize about it. We actually examine the way water works in the regular practical world. Montesquieu wants to do something analogous to that for governments. Instead of talking about some ideal government, he's going to talk about real governments. So he looks through all of political history. He wrote a book on the, the decline and greatness of the Romans. He wrote a number of other books in political science, but the most important one that he writes is called The Spirit of the Laws. And Montesquieu's attempt here 
is to analyze all the different kinds of governments that do exist in practice, and practice is the central concept here. Practicality, the way the world really works, is Montesquieu's prime concern and prime consideration. Now, in the spirit of the laws, he tries to analyze the various kinds of government that actually do exist, and he's rather skeptical and relativistic about it. He holds on to certain normative elements in political science, but the primary emphasis on skepticism is a rather relativistic perspective. Now, in terms of Montesquieu's immediate practical goals, he's living in France, the beginning part of the 18th century, under an absolute monarch. The king of France claims to rule by divine right, which is an ancient and rather archaic conception of political legitimacy. And in pra regardless of what the theory behind the French monarchy is, in practice, Montesquieu believes it often turns out to be an unenlightened despotism, that the prerogatives and the activities of the French monarch exceed what he ought to do, that his behavior is an infringement upon certain rights of both the arist aristocracy and the people, and his prime practical concern is figuring out how to impose limitations on government without undermining the possibility of political authority altogether. So Montesquieu is living under a, divine, under a divine right monarch, and he has great reservations about divine right monarchy. And his way of inquiring into both the particular circumstances of France and of the circumstances of all political societies is this comparative, rather skeptical method. Now, it took Montesquieu some 20 years to write The Spirit of the Laws. And over that time, he did a great deal of traveling. He spent several years living in England. He lived in Paris. He lived in various Italian cities. He moved around the world quite a bit. And he's an extremely cosmopolitan figure, very witty, very well-read, accepted into the best social circles. Remember that he lives in a time of aristocracy, and he is himself a baron. So it's very easy for him to move from one place to another, to be accepted into the most influential political circles. So he gets to talk politics across Europe, which is a great advantage. And of course, he has the money and the leisure which allow him to sit and reflect and spend 20 years working on something like the spirit of the laws. Now, for those of you who have read it, the spirit of the laws can be a, a rather intimidating book, a rather formidable book. It has a lot to do with the fact that it was written over the period of 20 years. It is an ill-organized book. It is very different from something like Hobbes' uh, Leviathan, which is organized with a beautiful Bach-like precision. The spirit of the laws rambles and moves from one topic to another, never completely stays on one theme, and is full of certain tensions and contradictions which Montesquieu himself never really reconciled. Now, in the spirit of the laws, what Montesquieu does is something like this. He adopts a naturalistic, rather scientific perspective on political history. And what he finds are this, is this, that there are basically three different kinds of government, and that these different kinds of government are characteristic of different climatic and geographic arrangements. In other words, there is an element in, of contingency to human government. Some governments are appropriate to small areas with relatively poor people. Other governments are appropriated to large territorial areas with a great deal of wealth. Other arrangements of wealth, climate, geography justify and create the necessity for different kinds of government. So instead of being something like Plato, specifying what the one best government is, Montesquieu adopts the position of a social scientist saying that, well, different governments work with different degrees of success under different circumstances. A very practical, this-worldly approach to political science. 
Now, according to Montesquieu, there are three different kinds of governments, which are distinguished by the kinds of geographic and climatic arrangements that make them possible, and also they're distinguished by the spirit behind the laws characteristic of each kind of government. There is a different notion of value. There is a different conception of virtue characteristic of each of the societies, each of the social structures, each of the governments which he finds in practical empirical investigation of political science. The first sort of government here that he finds is monarchy. He happens to be living under a monarchy, so it would be hard for him to miss that. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. And in the process of inquiring into monarchy, he concludes that monarchies are best suited to large areas that must be kept under one centralized administration. It's also suited to areas that don't have any natural boundaries. Since an area like that is going to be expansive by nature, or a, a country that is in a large flat plain is likely to be expansionist by nature, it is likely to be hard to control. It is likely to be both wealthy and highly populated. The only way of effectively administering such a government would be through a monarchy. Looking back in history, if we were to look at something like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, the history of Russia, well, anything as big as Russia and as spread out as Russia simply could not be a democracy or could not be a republic. It's just too big. Geography and climate make that impossible. So he'll account for the development of something like the czar, in Russia by referring to the climate and geography of Russia, saying that that's what makes sense there. Similarly, when Montesquieu looks at something like the history of China, he says the reason why China has had an emperor and dynasties of emperors for the last 30 centuries or so is that there's something about the place, the geographic area of China, and the climate of China, and all the naturalistic facts of life about living in China, which make this kind of government the appropriate kind of government, the kind that works. Monarchy is natural to certain areas. The chances of dispensing with monarchy, of moving to some other alternative, is simply non-existent in a place like Russia or China. It can't be done. Another example of something like this would be something like um, the Islamic world. It's too big, too spread out, too flat and open to incursion from the outside for it to be a republic, for it to be an aristocracy, for it to be something like that. Only something like centralized political administration will work given those circumstances. It makes a certain amount of sense. It's, in, in some respects, it's a very plausible argument. A second kind of government that Montesquieu recognizes is called despotism. And he dislikes despotism. Despotism is the rule essentially without law. One man that has complete control over society, whose word is carried out in every detail, who rules without political legitimacy and without any restraint on his power. Montesquieu very clearly dislikes this. I think, reading between the lines, that he is talking about the king of France every once in a while, but since he intended to keep his head on his shoulders, he decided to phrase it as if it were a possibility that might happen somewhere else some of the time. An intelligent idea. He's not the only political scientist to have done this in history. Right? So he lived a, to be a ripe old age, actually finished his 20-year project of writing the book, and he did so because he knew how to dissimulate. The problem with despotism is that instead of having honor as its main principle, which is the case of monarchy. In monarchy, what makes society run, what makes society cohere, what makes all the institutions and laws and usages of a monarchic society work is the fact that people are actuated by the principle of honor. That the intrinsic hierarchy that's established between people makes honor the main focus of activity. The hierarchies that are created within a monarchy, the showing of honor to the monarch, all the laws and institutions revolve around that. Now let's compare that to the question of despotism. In despotism, the principle that makes the government work is not honor, but fear. 
this harks back to Machiavelli, or and to Hobbes, those of you that are, remember those lectures, will note that fear is the central element in what Montesquieu views as a degenerate form of government, despotism. Now, there's a problem here. There are plenty of examples of despotism in the world, and there are plenty of examples of such despotisms being actuated by fear. You can't imagine a despotism that got by without the use of fear. If you don't terrorize the people, it's very hard to see how a despot will maintain himself in control. Here's the difficulty for Montesquieu. On the one hand, he wants to be a purely descriptive social scientist. He wants to look at the data of political history. He wants to look at the societies that are extant around him. And he wants to report on his findings. That's the descriptive element in Montesquieu's project. Yet the tone of voice that he uses, the choice of words that he uses when he describes despotism can leave you with no question but that Montesquieu thinks despotism is a degenerate and evil form of government. The difficulty is, how will we, rec will we reconcile this normative element in, Mo in Montesquieu's thinking with the purely descriptive social scientific element that we also see in his project? To be honest, he never completely reconciles this tension. There's an element of Montesquieu, which is clearly moralistic. He dislikes despotism. He thinks that a government whose main spirit is, that this is the spirit of terror or the spirit of fear is a degenerate and evil set of institutions which ought to be gotten rid of. On the other hand, what grounds could there be in a purely descriptive social science for saying that any one of the extant governments was any better than the others? Despotisms work in some places some of the time. What extra set of ideas, what agenda is he bringing to this that allows him to make these moral judgments and then try and gloss them over as if they were matters of social scientific fact. I think that Montesquieu is still wedded to the earlier tradition of natural law that comes out of Aquinas. On his deathbed, Montesquieu made a deathbed conversion to Catholicism. He got the last rites. And you get the impression that, like it or not, one way or another, there's the echoes of Christian morality, the echoes of the Christian conception of political order somehow subterranean, uh, built in a subterranean way into this theory. So it never completely achieves its goal of becoming a dispassionate and morally neutral description of society. The discussion of despotism can leave no doubt that he thinks despotism an evil. Now there's one more form of government and one more characteristic spirit that Montesquieu discusses, and he breaks this kind of government down into two parts. The kind of government he's talking about as the third alternative is called a republic, and he sees two kinds of republics, aristocracies and democracies. And here, by democracy, of course, we don't mean what we may mean today by democracy. He means having a government in which all non, or at least some non-nobles can participate. More, more than likely, what he has in mind is something like the English system, where people with certain property requirements are able to exercise the franchise. It's still be going to be limited to people, to men. It'll still be limited to people that have a certain degree of stake in society. But what he means by democracy is going to be a government which allows some degree of representation, which allows some degree of input from the actual common people. Now, for a democracy, a democratic republic, the actuating spirit is going to be virtue. Without virtue, in Montesquieu's sense, uh, democracy will very quickly break up Internal social cohesion will fall apart, and what you will have is the kind of disorder that sets the stage for the rise of despotism. So democracies tend to do well in small, isolated areas, mountainous countries, where there are only a few people and where there are natural geographic barriers to invasion. Obviously, what Montesquieu has in mind here is Switzerland, the Canton system of Switzerland, right, which has a relatively democratic 
structure. And he thinks that the key here of making a democracy work is the fact that Switzerland or countries like Switzerland are small, they are isolated, they are hard to invade. And the barrenness of the soil makes everyone more or less at a level of economic equality. You don't have the enormous disparities in wealth that you find in something like France or Italy, countries that are wealthier because of the, the wealth that comes from their soil. In Switzerland, the barrenness, the rockiness of the soil means that everyone is going to have to work for a living, that there will be a sufficient sustenance for everyone, but there are going to be very few people who are enormously wealthy. This rough equality of economic status leads to a sort of hardy individualism. Right? He was very influential in the ideology of the American Republic. Right? Jefferson's idea of the yeoman farmer is largely derived from Montesquieu's cue. And he thinks that in democracy, if this virtue is a spirit which permeates the people who exercise the franchise and permeates the government itself, that it is possible to run a democracy very efficiently, and that it is possible for human felicity to develop there, that it is a potentially good set of, of governmental rules. England, a place that Montesquieu admires enormously, is another example of a, something of what he would mean by a democracy. England in the early 18th century is probably not what we would mean by a democracy, but compared to the other political arrangements that we find in Europe in the early part of the 18th century, it's reasonable to describe this as a democratic system. Now, the advantage that England has is not the fact that it's surrounded by mountains. The geographic advantage that England has is the fact that it's an island. And he thinks that that is essentially determinative of its political history. And because it's a relatively small population, an island which is isolated from other potential invasions, from other potentially dangerous cultural trends, he thinks that England is another circumstance, like Switzerland, where it is possible to create a government based upon participation by the people and still have it, allow it to have that virtue which makes such a government possible. Any time that a democratic system of government loses the spirit of its laws, when it loses its virtue, then decline sets in, then we get the breakup into factions, the loss of social cohesion, potentially civil war and despotism. The soul of a government is its spirit. When it loses that characteristic spirit, the government itself crumbles and we fall back into one assumes the state of nature or something like that. Now, another kind of what Montesquieu describes as a republic is an aristocracy. Montesquieu is an aristocrat. He can't have failed to notice the significance of having a title in France during the Ancien Regime. Right? I mean, you can't miss the importance of that. So what Montesquieu says is that it's also possible to have a republic based upon aristocracy, based upon a hereditary aristocracy, a landed aristocracy, some elite group of people who represent a privileged segment of society. Under an aristocratic form of government, the characteristic spirit of the laws, the characteristic virtue, or the characteristic quality which the laws need to have, is not virtue, which is what we need in a democracy. It's not honor, which is what we need in a monarchy. It's moderation. Moderation is the, is the spirit of aristocratic laws. Now, what he means by that is something quite interesting. It's not what Plato means by moderation. Right, organizing your soul and having the reasoning part run your, your desires, all that kind of thing. That's not what he has in mind. What Montesquieu means by moderation is that the segments of society will naturally break up into the one, the few, and the many. This is a holdover from Aristotelian political theory. In other words, Montesquieu in some respects, or occasionally, because it's kind of a loose and somewhat ill-organized book, 
in some cases seems to think that society does break up naturally into the one, the few, and the many. And if you stop and think about the kind of governments he's sketching out here, you can clearly see his debt to Aristotle. When he talks about monarchy, we have the rule of the one. When we talk about democracy in a republic, we talk about rule of the many. When we talk about an aristocratic republic, we're talking about rule of the few. Now, in an aristocratic republic, the reason why moderation is the spirit of aristocratic laws is because what we're looking for in an aristocracy is a kind of Newtonian balance of the elements of society. If we have a strong and vigorous and moderate aristocracy as a dominant element in the government, they will play the people off against the monarch in such a way as to create human felicity, as to prevent tyranny from emerging, to prevent the government from becoming oppressive. Such a government can sustain itself and cre can create the conditions for human happiness only insofar as this moderation is created, insofar as the aristocracy has a certain pride of place which makes it prevent incursions by the king into the prerogatives of the aristocrats and, make, and prevents the rising of the people to a level which would abolish these hierarchies between the one, the few, and the many. So in other words, the reason why moderation is the key spirit of an aristocratic society is because that's what preserves this kind of Newtonian equilibrium between the natural elements in society. So for a monarchy, we need a certain kind of, set of, a certain kind of geography and a certain kind of people and a certain kind of wealth and a certain kind of social structure. And in order to make that last, in order to make that work, to prevent it from lapsing over into, into despotism, what we need is a particular kind of spirit accompanying those institutions and laws. That spirit is honor. In order to make a democracy work, what we need is a particular kind of geography, what we need is a particular kind of people, a particular kind of economy and social structure, and in addition, we need a particular kind of spirit actuating the, the laws and institutions of such a society. That spirit is virtue. As soon as a democratic people loses its virtue, you end up with something like a Rome during the time of bread and circuses. The people become debauched, and they are only, they're willing to trade their suffrage away for various kinds of evil activities or evil uh, compensations. Virtue, the unwillingness to succumb to the lures of the flesh, the unwillingness to sell one's vote, pride in the maintenance of a free and independent and roughly equal society. That's necessary to a democracy, according to Montesquieu. Aristocracy, we have to have moderation, we have to have the desire to keep a kind of Newtonian equilibrium, and also the insistence that the distinctions between the one, the few, and the many are natural and good for human beings. Many observers, writers on the history of philosophy, have made the observation that Montesquieu is in some respects out of step with the French Enlightenment because he is not as much an advocate of the rights of man, freedom, equality, the whole program of the French Revolution as later writers like Rousseau or Voltaire. The reason why is that Montesquieu represents a, a somewhat more skeptical, more uh, restrained and conservative trend in Enlightenment thought. He comes a little bit earlier than some of the other uh, writers of the French Enlightenment. And in that respect, he's a path-breaking social scientist that is trying, in some respects, to connect this normative element in his political science with this skeptical empirical element. Right? And the, the spirit of the law says that there are a number of possible good governments. This is a big change from the tradition of ancient political philosophy. There is one best government in Plato's Republic, the ideal state. 
Polity for Aristotle is, a, is an ideal kind of government or an excellent kind of government. Montesquieu is willing to be, to some degree, skeptical, is willing to be in some degree open-handed about good governments. He thinks that there are good aristocracies, he thinks that there are good monarchies, and he thinks that there are good democracies. It depends on the kind of place that, you, that you're in and the kind of people you're dealing with, which can possibly be brought into practice. The only government that he seems to consistently oppose is despotism, and I'll talk a little bit about the remedies for despotism at the end of the lecture. But there are some further considerations here about how to connect this tradition of social science, this normative and this empirical kind of trend in, Mont in Montesquieu's thinking. And what we get here is the idea that human government is a combination of human nature and arbitrary accidental contingent circumstances. Let me steal an example from David Hume just to make this clear. And then, because Montesquieu, although he's light years away from Hume in some of his tendencies, Hume and Montesquieu do, scare, do share a sort of skeptical approach to knowledge, right? They're very empirical in some respects. Hume says, that morals are natural to people in the following sense, that you see people create moral judgments and moral systems all over the world. It seems to be built right into people as a, as a kind of an instinct. And he makes the comparison to birds. Birds of the same species build their nests in more or less the same way all over the world. It's clear that nest building for birds is, strict, is strictly a kind of instinct. They don't make their choices. They have to build these nests. They're built that way. We find in human moral systems the fact that everyone does, or all societies do create moral systems, do create, in Montesquieu's sense, political systems, but that in, unlike birds, we vary our moral systems, we vary our political systems to suit the place and the time that we happen to be in. We don't make all our nests in the same way. If we happen to be born in a very cold climate in the Arctic Circle where people hunt seals, you'll find that the kind of houses we build for ourselves are made of snow. If we find ourselves in the tropics where there is no snow, you'll find that we build houses, but they're built of something else. Well, there's something analogous going on in Montesquieu's conception of government. If you happen to be in a place where there's a tremendous amount of scarcity, and if you're living in the Arctic Circle, and you have certain conditions of society, a small number of people with rough equality, you're going to create one particular kind of political system and one particular set of laws characteristic of that system. If you find yourself in the tropics, if you find yourself on an island, if you find yourself on a vast plain of steps, you may, under those circumstances, build yourself a different kind of house, or in this case, build yourself a different kind of political system. The building of political systems is like the building of nests in birds. It's built right into the human being. All of us people have a kind of instinct to create political order. We are social animals. Yet, under certain contingent circumstances, geography, climate, the number of people we have around us, things like that, the political traditions we are born into, well, we have to make adjustments for that. So the political system we find among the Eskimos is likely to be different from the political system we find, from, we find among the Englishmen, and for exactly the same reasons. Both the Englishmen and the Eskimos have an instinct to create political order because we are social animals. Yet the different circumstances that they find themselves in make different kinds of government or different kinds of moral order or different kinds of, of housing appropriate for different circumstances. Right? So there's, a, there's a, a kind of what I might call objective relativism here, which is a strange combination of terms, but bear with me for a second. I would say that Montesquieu is a relativist insofar as he believes that human government, that our laws and our governmental institutions have to be altered to suit the circumstances that we're in. It would be impossible to govern the Roman Empire as a democracy. We just couldn't get all those people together. It's impossible. 
it would be impossible to do uh, that kind of thing given the wrong uh, geographic or climatic circumstances. Yet, even though given various uh, climate or geographic circumstances, there is something constant within human nature that makes us all create governments, that makes us all create moral systems. So we have this kind of tension between the two. They vary in their details, but basically we all have a common set of needs. I think this is where he derives his condemnation of despotism. I believe that he sees that as a threat to political order and that's something that a, that a political order can degenerate into eventually. So in every case, the reason why it's so important to keep the spirit of the laws that you happen to have is because a constant threat hanging over any political organization is that it may lapse back into despotism. The difficulty here is how to reconcile these two contradictory tendencies. I don't think it's possible. I don't think Montesquieu ever did. In that respect, he's a kind of halfway house between the secular social science, characteristic of the Enlightenment, and the essentially theistic social science, or the theistic political science, characteristic of the Middle Ages and of the ancient political tradition. So in both cases, or we, in this case, we have Montesquieu as a kind of halfway house. Some commentator on Montesquieu once said that he was something like a, the bacon of social science, and that Adam Smith had the honor, coming a generation or two later, of being sort of the Newton of social science. It's a gradual groping towards a conception of human society, which is on the one hand skeptical of the claims of divine origin, skeptical of claims that, there are, that there's only one good kind of government. On the other hand, it still maintains a normative element. It doesn't go for a complete, straightforward normative view. The relativism that he holds says that, yes, there may be differences in how we punish murder or how we punish theft. But I believe he'll hold that there is objectively a necessity for punishing theft in every society or punishing murder in every society. So that is how our, our governments will differ. There'll be a part that corresponds to human nature, Okay? And that will be the same across societies. On the other hand, they will differ in the way they actually implement these necessary laws and in the way these necessary laws connect with the actual accidental circumstances around them. Now, it may sound odd that such a skeptical thinker as Montesquieu would have practical and concrete recommendations for changing the governments around him. In other words, he thinks that there are some things that every good government ought to do. And the most important of his contributions is the idea of the division of powers. Now, Locke, to some extent, pioneered the idea of division of powers. And Hobbes explicitly says that the division of powers is a terrible idea. It leads to civil war. So Montesquieu is actually, in some respects, a pioneer in this idea. Let me see if I can explain it as it develops historically. Hobbes says outright that to divide sovereignty is to set the stage for civil war and the lapse back into the state of nature, the war of all against all. That's the kind of thing that we have a rational obligation to avoid. That's the worst of all human circumstances. Now, Locke points out that the division of powers in society doesn't necessarily lead to civil war and, in fact, can be framed in such a way as it maintains a sort of equilibrium between the various interests in society. And it's this equilibrium which makes possible human felicity because it makes possible liberty. Liberty is one of the key questions in Locke. We must not submit to arbitrary authority. And what makes liberty possible, what makes civil rights possible, is the fact that all governmental power is not stuck into one sovereign, the way Hobbes would like it. It's rather dispersed among several competing entities. And it's this competition and mutual 
supervision that makes the freedom of the individual possible. Now Montesquieu, for all his skepticism, for all his urbane cosmopolitan relativism, greatly admired English government. He spent several years in England while he was writing the spirit of the laws, and he takes English liberty in many passages in the spirit of the laws as being some sort of high point in the development of political life. It doesn't square very well with the relativism, doesn't square very well with the, uh, the comparative project that he's engaged in, but he can't hold back his admiration for the fact that England has, a, the, has freedom of religion, religious toleration, which he thinks a very good thing. England has the right of freedom of expression, at least in a limited extent. England has at least the division of powers, or, because he thinks that's how the English government in practice works, which makes it possible for free inquiry, free thought to happen. He thinks this is necessary to human felicity. Implicitly here, what we have is a criticism of French absolutism. Right? He's very careful not to put that back in the section on absolutism. But when he talks about liberty, he always talks about it in the most approving terms. The way in which we establish liberty is the same as it is the same as he believes it actually empirically works in England. We give a certain degree of power to the House of Lords, we give a certain degree of power to the House of Commons, and we keep the one, we keep the monarch around so that we can create a kind of equilibrium between them. And it's this equilibrium, this division of powers, which makes possible what he calls English liberty, the rights of the individual. Now, the difference between Montesquieu and Locke, and the way in which Montesquieu is an extension of Locke, is a kind of an elaboration, perhaps an improvement of Locke, is that Locke divides powers into the legislative, the executive, and the federative, which essentially is the part of the government that deals with foreign affairs, things like treaties and making a war and stuff like that. Montesquieu makes a different division when he, divide, when he goes for the division of powers in the government. He goes for the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And you must have heard of this before. We're in Washington, right? And the reason why you've heard of this is that Montesquieu was extremely influential among the founding fathers. Guys like James Madison and uh, John Adams and Hamilton and all the guys, all the political theorists who are most influential in the formulation of the American Constitution and the creation of the American government were saturated in, in Locke and also very heavily influenced by Montesquieu. Now, it's kind of a difficult thing to reconcile. Since there are so many contradictions in Montesquieu, you may imagine they had all kinds of difficulties in making him work just as a practical political theory. But what they were most concerned with is creating a government in which Montesquieu's conception of the balance of powers was written in. And in addition, those of you who are familiar with the Federalist Papers, right, the papers written by uh, Jay and Hamilton, um, in order to justify and explain and get people to approve of the new Constitution, they talk constantly about the fact that liberty will be preserved by creating a balance of powers, and at the same time, this will not be an invitation to social disorder because these, the government will be sufficiently powerful to maintain that equilibrium. By maintaining that equilibrium, we create the best possible conditions for human felicity. Now we have a difficulty. Montesquieu says that republics have to be small. Montesquieu says that it would be nice if a, Republican, if a republic was an island. And when we look at America, east of the Appalachians, from Georgia to Maine or Georgia to Massachusetts, we do not find a little area. We find a, a really huge area, or especially for the, early, for the middle part of the 18th century, quite a huge area. And it's not an island either. It's exposed potentially to invasion. Montesquieu, in other words, would think very unlikely the project of turning 
the eastern seaboard of the United States into a republic. So the first, or at least some parts of the Federalist Papers are homage to Montesquieu, saying, yes, we will meet all of Montesquieu's prescriptions. We think he's a very sapient political writer, and we'll try and incorporate his insights. And then at the same time, they have to turn around and say, incidentally, we suspect, or well, they can't quite say suspect, we know or we have good reason to believe Montesquieu is wrong. <laughs> you can't say suspect in campaign literature. You have to say we're absolutely certain of it. Right? So they said, we're quite certain that Montesquieu was wrong about the small ex geographical extent of republics. It will actually work in this republic. You need not worry about the fact that, that factions will emerge. You need not worry about the potential for civil war. You need not worry that the people that we elect into the government will be so far from us that we can't control them. We think that by, um, and this is where Federalist 10 comes in, that different parties or different factions will break up and maintain a sort of equilibrium between them. Right? That's, in a way, an answer to Montesquieu's objection uh, to the project, or would-be objection, to the project of creating a republic in a large geographic area. Now, Montesquieu is perhaps, or one of the, one of the more important and less cited writers that influenced the development of American government. That's his practical significance. He had a somewhat conservative and somewhat pessimistic view of human nature. He thought that there were limits to the degree to which we could impose one conception of government, one idealization of government on the different societies in the world. Fortunately for us, he was sufficiently skeptical so that he didn't talk very much about the founding of new societies, so that the founding fathers, the people that wrote the Federalist Papers, could get away with dubious extrapolations from Montesquieu. That's in some respects the strong point of their, their borrowings from him. By separating the powers, he did, they did in fact create a system which maintains equilibrium for the most part, is fairly resistant to civil war. It has most of the qualities that Montesquieu ascribed to it. Right? The, only the only thing that Montesquieu had not anticipated is the fact that it is possible for new things to happen. And this is, in some respects, the, the difficulties with an empirical method in social science. It allows you, it gives you good grounds for believing that what has happened in the past and what is happening in, there, in other parts of the world, that we can expect something roughly like that to happen under similar circumstances now. The problem is that sometimes, as in the case of the Founding Fathers in America, we're faced with unique circumstances, circumstances that haven't been encountered before. For example, a series of colonies breaking away, trying to form an enlightened government, trying to form a government in which virtue will be maintained and which the balance of powers will guarantee individual liberty, but across a wide geographic expanse. Here, they're forced to take a leap of faith, to take their chances with it. Fortunately for us, it works out. In closing, there's something worth thinking about. Those of you who are interested in the history of the American Revolution, and particularly the ideology behind the formation of the American government, you will find in the writings of the Founding Fathers a constant, almost obsessive reference and re-reference to virtue, political virtue. We have to hold on to our virtue. Uh, if you read something like Bernard Balin's Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, or any of the Federalist Papers themselves, the loss of virtue, the fact that the English government has become corrupt, the fact that this corruption is now seeping over across the Atlantic into the sort of government that we have, and that this is a threat to our rights, a threat to our liberties, a threat to human felicity that has to be nipped in the bud. That's, in some respects, what the ideology of the American Revolution and the ideology of the American Constitution is all about. The fact that if we are to maintain our felicity, we also must put together the appropriate sort of government. But taking a page from Montesquieu's book, if we wish to have a Republican government, if we wish to have a democratic element in our political life, and if we wish to maintain uh, 
an appropriate rather than a despotic sort of government, we have to maintain virtue. It means frugality, it means a rough equality, and it means a wide uh, transmission and distribution of property which prevents anyone from becoming impoverished to the point where they would sell their vote, where they would prostitute the franchise, and thus open the door to tyranny. This, in some respects, is uh, a kind of anticipation of Thomas Jefferson's idealization of the yeoman farmer. What Thomas Jefferson says, and one of the most influential of the founding fathers, even though he wasn't actually around for the construction of the Constitution, the idea that individual Hum uh, that individual citizens ought to have enough property to make themselves independent, which will maintain their political virtue, which will keep them fiercely devoted to liberty, to freedom, and to a rough kind of equality, not a, a total equality in the platonic sense, but a rough equality based upon the amount of work that one does. That virtue is absolutely necessary to the maintenance of a republic. So when the Federalist Party talks about the rise of democracy and the superabundance of popular feeling and what a danger that is to public virtue, they are not merely mouthing a reactionary objection to the fact that their position in society is being threatened. They are really going back to the best political theory that they're familiar with. They're going back to the tradition of enlightened political theory that comes from Montesquieu, who demonstrates more than adequately that certain kinds of virtue, certain, a certain spirit to the law of a democracy is necessary, and without it we can anticipate Caesarism, the descent into despotism, and the breakup of what is potentially a noble experiment and what they think to be the best kind of government. So when you read, or if you do read, the history of the United States, the, uh, the origins of the Constitution, and the development of American revolutionary ideology, keep in the back of your mind the fact that Montesquieu is well known to all the writers that are involved with this, well known to all the members of the Constitutional Convention, and well known to the people who put together American federalism and who, um, who, whose hearts were broken by the decline of the quasi-aristocratic elements in federalist politics.